Let's join in prayer. We pray as we have sung that your word might direct us, that we discerning might also be learning and applying the things we hear. Bless us as we spend time in it now, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, last week we began this uh, new series on Daniel chapters 1 to 7. And this morning we turn to chapter 2 and I want to begin with an observation. The observation is a personal one because I say it seems to me that the sort of people who often win the admiration of those around them are those who can keep their head in a time of crisis. Whether it be a fire, a road accident or some other kind of emergency, are these people who can keep their head in a time of a crisis can approach a situation without panic and take deliberate action. Next week we'll read about the three men who were cool in the furnace, but today we read about Daniel and his friends who were cool in a crisis. Of course, not all of us are like that. There are others, and I'd probably include myself in that number, who if faced with an emergency would more likely freeze on the spot, wishing I knew what to do rather than doing anything at all. I don't think Daniel was like that. In chapter 2, we note the calm manner in which Daniel acted in this emergency. When the king and his rage threatened to kill all his wise men, Daniel and his friends knew that their heads were on the chopping block. And although they were not part of the king's wise men as such, they knew that the king's rage and anger would spill over and fall upon them. It was a crisis of fairly big proportions, but within that crisis, this morning we've read how Daniel kept his head. He kept it literally attached to his neck, but also figuratively he kept his head cool in that crisis, able to chart a course that would lead directly to the sovereign God who rules over all. Now, it's a long chapter this morning and it's very, very hard to cover everything, but I've got three headings by which we might review the story and then some applications to make. The chapter begins with a troubling dream and a stubborn king, verses 1 to 11. A troubling dream and a stubborn king. Reading through the chapter, even the whole book, even the casual reader would not be able to miss the strong emphasis in the book upon dreams, even the king's dreams. It seems that he was subject to the most memorable and vivid dreams that caused him much anxiety. This was not the cause of late night pizza, but they were instead the method that the sovereign Lord used to speak to Nebuchadnezzar, this king, this heathen king, who at the time was the most powerful man in the world. Now before we tackle the king's dream, perhaps a general word of explanation about dreams would be helpful. In the Old and New Testaments, we have a number of recorded incidents where God spoke clearly and directly to people through dreams and visions. 
You could recall Joseph's dreams in Genesis or the dreams of the New Testament Joseph concerning the birth of Jesus. You might recall the visions that came to the apostles Peter and Paul, direct messages from God. The danger we face is taking these facts on board and taking the big jump of therefore assuming that our dreams are somehow messages from God and therefore we should take careful note of them and kind of do what they say. I don't know about you, but if my dreams are a message from God, then God is clearly confused. He has no idea what he's talking about because most of my dreams are randomly nonsensical. So I sound a note of caution about taking the jump that assuming that dreams are methods that God uses today when we have the full word of God by which God does speak to us and does convey his will. Moving away from that only opens the door for other methods of communication that we think are from God and the greater danger of drifting away from the truth. An example of this happened in my first parish. A man from a local church stopped me in the street one day to express his disappointment and disgust at one of the Presbyterian ministers in Melbourne. It seems that the man who spoke to me had had a dream and in his dream he found himself preaching in this particular Presbyterian church in Melbourne. On waking, he concluded that God was telling him that he should go there and preach. So he rang the minister of the church and said, God told me in a dream that I should come to your church and preach. Now I know how I would feel if someone rang me and said, I've had a dream and I should come to your church and preach. I would say, that's all very nice, but no thank you. And that's exactly what the minister said. That's all very nice, but no thank you. Such a response left the man feeling that the minister was at fault and not God at all. So direct communication from God is not always that easy, nor is it granted, nor is it promised. In the case of the king, it was clear that God was using dreams to speak to him, revealing himself to a king in the manner that would cause the king to sit up and take notice. But in our cases, following your dreams might lead you to a terrible dead end. Now as to the king's response to this dream, you could note that the opening chapters of this book of Daniel reveal more about Nebuchadnezzar than they do about Daniel. This Nebuchadnezzar was a pagan king. He was responsible for the capture and the collapse of the kingdom of Judah as well as the city of David, Jerusalem. His army had taken, overtaken Assyria in power and might and strength to become the most powerful of armies and kingdoms in the entire era. And the king himself was the most powerful of men in the world, risen to the dizziest of heights. But God was going to bring him down. And God began to show him through a couple of dreams that he could move armies and kings like chess pieces and control nations and kingdoms. And here was Nebuchadnezzar with all this power actually 
undone by a dream. It's quite a contrast. In fact, the dream troubled him so much he wanted an answer, not a pat answer from the astrologers as if to patronise him. He wanted the truth. He wanted no leg pulling. He wanted the true meaning of the dream. He wanted the dream not only explained to him but told to him. Now, if I asked you, tell me what I dreamed last night, you would go, I have no idea. Blank. So you can see how hard this was for the wise men of the time. Unless they could come up with the dream and the interpretation, anyone could come up with the interpretation. They would all face execution. Now, either the king can't remember the dream or he doesn't trust his own advisers not to hoodwink him. Whichever the answer is, It's a pretty sad condition for the man, the most powerful man on the earth at the time. This is how he seems to want to safeguard being duped by those who were his own counsellors and wise men. And the reaction of his wise men is all quite revealing. O king, there is no one on earth who can explain your dream except the gods and they do not live among men. It's amazing, I think, that people turn to dreams and astrology. I'm astounded at the interest shown in newspapers, in women's magazines, not that I read women's magazines. Astrology, what's your star sign today? What does your astrologer say about your future today? I'm astounded that people fall for this. Friends, only the word of God is trustworthy. Only the word of God can deliver us. Only the word of God is true and only the word of God will lead us to salvation. Nebuchadnezzar had to find this out the hard way. Second, we read in Daniel 2 of Christ's praying and welcome answers in verses 12 to 45. As I've said, the decree of the king meant that Daniel and his friends were facing execution. I like the way the writer shows how Daniel acted with great calm. His wisdom intact in buying some time before any action was taken and then his appeal to his friends concerning the urgency of the situation before together they all turned to the Lord that he might make the mystery plain. Of course in a crisis many people will pray. And many of them will pray as a last resort. In fact, some people only pray when there's a crisis upon them. But on this occasion, this resorting to prayer was not a last resort. This was the first resort. This was their response. Now we found out that we're about to be killed. Let's go to the God of heaven. Let's ask him to reveal the mystery for us. Here they were, these young men who knew their God, uprooted from their home, replanted in Babylon, and they were determined to bloom where they were planted and unflinchingly hold to the God they knew had allowed them to go. They were sure that God was in this situation and they were sure that if they prayed, God would reveal the answer to them. 
It's vital that we note here Daniel's courage and his manner in the face of this crisis. Each step of courage leads him to face the next step of courage. Bigger sorts of trials. We'll come to that in chapter 6 where his dependence upon prayer will see him in the den of the lions. These are things that God is doing with you too. You might wonder, why does God bring so many trials and troubles into my life? The answer is here, so that your trust in him might grow, so that you will be readier when the next crisis comes, and the next, and the next, because they will keep coming. God is not prepared to let you stay where you are, but wants you to be more and more to be transformed like transformed into the image of his son. And this is his method to use rough times to knock off rough edges. And surely there's a key principle to observe and to put into practice here. Do what you can. Leave the results to the Lord. This is what Daniel and his friends did. They went to the king, they got some time, they did everything they could possibly humanly do. But that was not all. They brought the whole matter to the Lord and left it with him. In the longer section of the text, in terms of the dream itself, we have the interpretation of the dream and the relaying of that information to the king. Now, I don't think I need to go into a lot of detail about the dream that could take ages and ages except to say that God showed the king something about himself and something about the future. God showed the king that he was the head of gold, that he was the most powerful of all and that God had given to him that power. God had allowed him to rise to the throne But God showed him something about the future and told him that another kingdom, in fact a series of kingdoms, would succeed his kingdom. There would be a kingdom made of silver, the Persians. Uh, This kingdom would succeed the Babylonians but not be as great. Then the bronze belly and the thighs would be the kingdom of the Greeks who would succeed the Persians. And then would come the iron legs of clay, the kingdom of the Roman Empire, far off into the future. We learn from the dream that from the head of gold down to the toes of iron, that there is diminishing value in each of these kingdoms, but also that each kingdom that would come would outlast the other in terms of strength. But the most important part of all, the most important part of all, is the part that troubled the king, this rock, which appeared from nowhere, that caused this great statue to crumble and to fall. This rock, this kingdom of God, that would be set up by the Lord Jesus, that would rule over all heaven and all earth, would bring all kingdoms and all kings back to zero. Third, in verses 46 to 49, which we didn't actually read this morning, we find humble worship and fitting reward. The humble worship 
comes from the king. It's strikingly surprising. Especially when you consider in chapter 3, in the very next chapter, that it appears that eventually this dream puffed up Nebuchadnezzar so much that he went and built that statue as best as he could and called on everyone to bow down and worship it or be killed. So you might read of Nebuchadnezzar's worship of the Lord here and the confession of his mouth, truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and take it with a grain of salt at the moment. He's not converted. After all, how, how could, how, you could say, how deep does his faith go? How deep does his confession go? How real is the worship that this king offers? I think he's impressed, but not much more especially when we see that his immediate response is to honour Daniel by offering sacrifice to him and incense to him, something that Daniel would have rejected. But in being cynical about this confession of Nebuchadnezzar, remember we're dealing with a man who is a pagan. To see him fall down on his face is not usual behaviour for a man in his position, But remember, he had no background in the law of God. He had no schooling in the way to worship God. He was no Israelite. He knew not what was expected from him. And then, in relation to the reward that Daniel received at his request, what should we make of this? Well, as we've seen already and we'll see again, the blessing of the Lord which was upon Daniel, was that which set them apart and made them eye-catching and influential before the king. Daniel's promotion for faithful service is something we will see again and again through the book as he rises through the ranks, continuing to be faithful and living with integrity before successive kings. And as he does that, we hear the Apostle Peter instructing us, chapter 2, verse 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honourable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Well, let's bring this to a finish. What lessons and conclusions can we draw that we can apply to a crisis in our own lives? Well, first let's think about what God gives and values and can do. What God gives. Here we find him giving peace in turmoil. That's the idea of the picture. It would be wrong to suggest that Daniel and friends had a relatively stress-free incident. Rather, in the midst of all that took place, Daniel and his friends discovered that God was ready to act and to help. It was the trial that forced them to rely heavier upon God and know him better. Such truths, such things as that, don't come to people in general, but they do come to God's people. 
your trials so that you might know God better and trust him more. Let's see what God values here. He values character more than power. Consider the contrast. The king had power and might and could conquer everything but couldn't grasp the mysteries of God. Daniel had no riches or might or weapons or armies but he knew the Lord. The king knew rage and anger. Daniel knew self-control and assurance. The world may be impressed by the king's splendour but God was impressed by Daniel's character. He feared God. He trusted him. Another lesson is seen in what God can do. This account surely encourages us that God will bless the one who seeks him as they come to him and ask and pray to him for help. It will not be to our loss. It will not be a waste of time to seek the Lord in the day of trouble, in your time of crisis. On the contrary, we should draw near. We can draw near, for he will answer the petition of his children, for his ears are open to the cry of the righteous. And finally, let's consider what God foreshadowed. Consider, if you will, verse 35, then the iron and the clay and the bronze and the silver and the gold were crushed all at the same time and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them was found but the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. There's two psalms being referred to here. One is Psalm 1 that talks about the wicked, the evil, that are like chaff that the wind blows away. And the second is Psalm 2, verses 8 and 9. We started the service with it, where the Lord speaks to the Messiah and says, Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Daniel 2 reminds us of the fulfilment of what God promised to the Messiah, to Jesus, in Psalm 2. The kingdoms of the world would be his. Confidence, we can have it. God is sovereign in history and all those whose confidence in him may be confident in any type of crisis and any time of crisis so that we may always keep our heads, look up to him, and keep on doing so. This is one of the great themes of the book of Daniel, that we might always be encouraged. And what happens when we be encouraged? We take courage, as Daniel and his friends will next be called to do. Will you do that? Will you be encouraged? And then 
take courage. The sovereign God rules all. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this chapter of your word. We thank you for the things you did for Daniel in the midst of his crisis and his trial and difficulty. Thank you that you spoke to him as you did. Thank you that you spoke to the king. We often pray, and we should pray, that you would deal with world leaders, our leaders, all leaders, revealing yourself and your reality so that they might, in humble worship, find not only true wisdom, but also bow the knee to Christ, our King. Forgive us, Lord, when we turn aside from you in times of crisis. We forget to pray. We forget that you rule. We forget that you are sovereign every day, every circumstance. Please help us, teach us these things that we might show the kind of response that brings glory to our Saviour. We pray all this in his name. Amen.